Hello, pioneers, boundary busters, toilers, and wordslingers. Welcome to another episode of Right Minded. I'm Brooke Warner, and also always here with my unrivaled co-host, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, I'm trying to remember who we've talked to on past episodes who we can legitimately call a pioneer. Certainly, Mary Carr is a pioneer of memoir. People call her the godmother of memoir. And for someone to have this title bestowed on them to be a pioneer of a whole genre or a whole writing space within the writing world is a pretty big deal. And so there you have it. We have a big deal guest on the show today, Donna Hill, who's an early pioneer of African-American romance with a cool 100 books under her belt. And honestly, I just marvel at that number. It's an amazing number. And I've got to say, when we talked to Donna about her whole journey in publishing, it was just fascinating to hear where she started and where she is now. So so listeners, tune into that interview. And also, yeah, to be pioneering a space like that raises so many questions about the impact Donna has made and about what she's had to overcome to establish herself in the space. And thinking about Donna Brooke actually got me thinking about other prolific authors, and we've had so many of them on the show before. I'm thinking Pico Iyer and Jane Smiley and Mark Nepo and Marissa Meyer, Tracy Clark and Cami Garcia. And of course, we, we champion all kinds of authors here. And I, I had an organization that's all about getting people to write and possibly publish. Um, but there's a special place for writers who dedicate their entire lives to the written word. And I raise this topic because a lot of people don't know the expectations, uh, especially of genre writers. Um, there's a general expectation of about a book a year for many genres, and this is especially true of romance. I notice many romance authors actually publish more than a book a year, and, and some of them often do it under various pseudonyms and self-publish, perhaps. Um, you know, that they have a hustle as a writer that, that's actually beyond me, especially those who self-publish. So they're managing more than just their writing. Yeah, I agree, Grant. And that's why when I got the email from Donna Hill's publicist, I felt like this was just such an important guest to honor. And I think we can learn a lot from authors like Donna Hill who toil away not only at their craft, but also at the hustle. I mean, there is a real hustle going on to get published in the way that Donna has over the years. And she's had many publishers, notably St. Martin's, Harlequin, and Kensington, which are the presses that have done the majority of her books, but lots of offshoots too. She has a forthcoming book coming out in May. I am Aya. Uh, that's coming out on Sideways. And that actually made me think of another Aya, Aya de Leon, who we've had on the show recently, uh, who's also a Kensington author, because I know when she got her deal with Kensington, it was a multi-book deal. And it was exactly what you said, this idea of like a book a year. And I've talked to her about that, you know, like the hustle is real. And this means an author is committed to writing, you know, like five books, sometimes in less than five years. And Donna Hill has been outpacing that for like, for decades. It's wild. And so it's not just the output that's impressive because it is, but honestly, the ideas, you know, like what kind of mind do you have to have to just keep generating story after story after story? Uh, so I'm curious, Grant, what are your thoughts on that? Like, it's stunning to me and it must just speak to the kind of creativity or brain power that a particular person has. I'm in awe and I've ever obviously never written at that kind of pace. Um, so, so I don't know how one does it, but but I'm, I'm imagining it's a type of brain training. Like I like to think that all of us could do it. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I get a lot of ideas for stories, but most of them I don't pursue because I'm, I'm, I'm not writing at that pace. There isn't that expectation of me by myself or a publisher. And I think if I was writing in a different genre where the expectations of more books were the case, 
I might take a more disciplined and methodical approach. Like I was thinking I would come up with a system to, to capture ideas and maybe outline them and kind of create my own pipeline of books and ideas. And in some ways that sounds fun. So maybe I'll actually try <laughs> it a bit and see how that works. And I also think it's worth adding here though, that the, you know, the romance genre is one of those genres where the readership is just ridiculously prolific. They're, they're known to be totally insatiable and always want the next novel and it's been a while since we featured a romance writer on the show, but we spoke not too long ago with Angelina Lopez about how romance is not taken seriously as a genre or for being, a, you know, that it's a guilty pleasure. But the flip side of that is that it's serious business and, and there's a voracious readership. And I think it's the number one selling genre, if I'm right, at least globally, if not in the United States. And and Donna Hill has this particular niche of african-american romances which i imagine is largely consumed by an african-american readership uh but this isn't just a niche it's a it's it's a massive segment of the marketplace that both needs to be tended to and is also probably bringing in a lot of dollars it is bringing in a lot of dollars <laughs> it definitely is and that's why you have i mean like kensington and harlequin in particular are really catering to this readership uh it's made me think about the lesbian pulp fiction market actually of the 50s and 60s by comparison just by way of a specific other niche market and it's historically always been the case that there are these massive readerships that legacy publishing both tends to like know is there not know what to do with and like marginalize at the same same time. And Donna's going to speak to that a little bit in her uh, story of her, her journey, which is just so fascinating, you know, so be it black romance or lesbian pulp or whatever else you can imagine, like the facts are, there's a big readership, you know, and it just always astounds me that, you know, publishing wants to have this message like that the, the readership somehow isn't there. Uh, and it, I think it's because they're the kinds of novels that don't get reviewed in the New York times, you know, though, honestly, the authors are probably selling more books than many of the household names we can think of who are guaranteed these big splashy debuts on their next novels. And I think one of the reasons we need to honor an author like Donna Hill is because I honestly can't even imagine the amount of pleasure and joy she's brought to so many countless readers, uh, you know, but doing so without the kind of acclaim of some of her contemporaries and other genres. Yeah, good points, Brooke. And it feels important that we continue to look at the ways that publishing marginalizes both entire segments of people and entire genres. And we've talked about the ways in which romance gets stigmatized and, and the stickiness of that because it's also so popular, as you mentioned. But there are also entire segments of readers that get marginalized and certainly Donna Hill writing for a Black readership, specifically women's fiction and romance. This is the exact audience that book publishing has not catered too well in the past. But but speaking to the change that's underway, we're seeing a whole lot more content development by and for people of color. But it seems important to also acknowledge that these books and shows, they aren't necessarily, they don't have to be necessarily for people of color. And there's, you know, there's a huge crossover audience. And, um, you know, I guess that's been historically complicated, like everything else, but it's obviously very present. Yeah, it is. I mean, my memoir crush, Kiese Lehman, talks about how problematic The Cosby Show was, for instance, um, in his memoir. You know, it's a show that I grew up 
on and loved, by the way. And so that's like just speaking about like a black show that was had a quote unquote crossover audience, you know, which was really probably developed for white people. Um, and he wrote about the Cosby show, which I love. I'm just going to say a couple of his lines. Like he, he was, it was problematic, you know, including, but not limited to, and here are Kiese's words, the sweaters, the corny kids, the problems that weren't problems, the smooth jazz, the manufactured cleanliness, the non-existent poverty residue. And he really takes it to task and he says, only in science fiction could a black man doctor who delivered mostly white babies and a black woman lawyer who worked at a white law firm come home and never once talk mess about the heartbreaking, violent machinations of white folks at both their jobs, uh, the harassing low down predictable advances of men at Claire's office. So of course, you know, I couldn't have had any of that context as a kid watching that show. Uh, you know, and since I've heard Will Smith in his memoir, uh, you know, talking about Fresh Prince of Bel-Air also needing to appeal to white viewers. So I just thought it's important to bring up this idea, like what does crossover audience mean in publishing? It usually means that a writer of color will appeal to white people or that a woman will appeal to a male readership. And I don't think that this orientation is necessarily wrong from a sales standpoint, but the point needs to be made here that publishing also underestimates its own audiences. And there are plenty and plenty of white readers who want to consume authentic content by writers of color and everything in between, you know, black readers of Asian writers, indigenous readers of international writers, Southeast Asian readers of black content, and I can go on and on and on. And the reason all this matters to me is because it gets back to pioneering, right? Like the people like Donna who tend to her audience and have over all these years, she knew who they were then and now, you know, black women. And now I think it's right and safe to say that we're in a world where, you know, we're just thinking about this stuff in a different way. And now we have Octavia Spencer uh, taking on the rights to Confessions in B-flat, which is a movie that's going to be produced, Confessions in B-flat being one of Donna's books. And, you know, I think we're just starting to get a little bit more holistic about audiences uh, these days, but that couldn't happen if it weren't for the pioneers like Donna. Yeah, there are so many writers out there who've been toiling away, doing their thing in silos and doing it really well. And then the culture catches up with them. And I imagine that's got to be a really interesting and maybe kind of mixed reaction experience. You know, Donna has been doing exactly that. Just nose to the grindstone, banging out all these books for, for, you know, nearly four decades. And so I'm excited to talk with her and hear what her experience has been, what's changed and what she's excited about moving forward. And we'll get to do all that after this very short break and this spectacular musical interlude. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so thrilled to welcome Donna Hill. Donna is a highly regarded early pioneer of romance novels featuring Black protagonists. She has more than 100 published titles to her credit and has been featured in Essence, The Daily News, US Today, uh, Today is Black Woman, and elsewhere. She's also the recipient of many awards, including the Zora Neale Hurston Literary Award and the Gold Pen Award. Three of her novels have been adapted for television. And today, in addition to writing and publishing more books, she's also an assistant professor of professional writing at Medgar Evers College. Welcome, Donna. Hi, how are you, Brooke? Thank you for having me. <laughs> I am great. And I am so excited because I want to talk to you about this particular accolade of being a pioneer of African-American romance. Can you tell us when 
like, rather what this particular genre or publishing space was like when you first entered it as opposed to now? Completely different (laughs) (laughs) to to begin with. You know, um, my first novel was actually published in 1990. Prior to that, um, from all of the research that I'd done, there had been approximately less than half dozen romances with African-American characters ever published like ever. Wow. And when I submitted my, my, my manuscript for the very first time, um, you know, I submitted it to like one of the biggest romance publishing houses in the world. And they've said, well, this is nice, you know, um, but do your characters have to be black? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> You're like, mm-hmm. Okay. And so that was in 1989, actually. And I was totally discouraged because I'm thinking, you know, if this major house is not interested, then what would I do? And my thought was, you know, as, as I was writing, you know, my thought was, you know, the reason why, you know, nobody's publishing books that, you know, with characters that look like me is because nobody's writing them. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the case. And so ultimately, you know, kind of fast forward just a little bit. Ultimately, I um, was doing, you know, my due diligence, reading all of the magazines. And in the back, there was an ad for Odyssey Books, um, a small um, independently owned publishing house in Silver Springs, Maryland. And they were looking for African-American romances written by African-Americans. I was like, whoa, that's actually me. That's what I have. <laughs> and so, you know, being the fiction writer that I am, you know, I write this glowing letter and I send off, you know, my six chapters, whatever it was that I had at the time, because I got discouraged and I stopped writing. So I send it off. I get this letter back and it's like, we would like to publish your book. I was like, oh no, I don't have the rest of the book. So um, I was, I, you know, I, I dash off this letter and I'm like, you know, um, I'm really not satisfied with the end of the novel and I have to, continue, <laughs> you know, I need to do some revision and some more research, blah, blah, blah. So meanwhile, I'm writing like furiously every day, you know, going back to work on the, you know, on the train because I live in New York. So I was on the subway going to work, you know, going, I would have my notebook out and I would write, 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 write. I would write, write, write on my way home. I'd come home in the evening and I would type this is how far back this was. This is pre-computers and laptops and everything. I was typing my novel on a selectric typewriter with carbon paper and whiteout. Oh my goodness. Yes. So I get, you know, I get the manuscript done. I send it in and they publish it. And it was um, the first contemporary novel out of that publishing house and kind of like launched the company. But when the book came out, there was nowhere to put it. Because the um, bookstores didn't understand what this black book thing was supposed to be. Like, where do we put this, right? Um, So there were no categories. And when the book was released, I started just taking the books to local bookstores in Brooklyn and saying, look, this is what I have. Would you be willing to take it like on consignment? Um, you know, just take it. I'll give them to you so that people can, you know, try to try to see, um, you know, what it is that we're doing. 
So it was it was very difficult at the beginning. Um, Odyssey was ultimately able to publish quite a few other Black romance authors. And then Kensington Publishing launched the Arabesque line. And so Kensington, of course, is, is, is a much bigger player in the publishing world. Um, and that gave us a larger platform. Um, and that wasn't until like 1992, 93, um, that this was happening. So it was not that long ago. Um, and so now when you go into a bookstore and you see, you know, Black romances on the shelves, that was not a thing, <laughs> you know, when I first started, you couldn't find them. They just were not there. So it was, it, it was, it's, it's a lot has changed since, since then. You know, Donna, that was such a great uh, history of publishing, really necessary. Like sometimes we see stats and it's, it's just interesting to, to have that behind the scenes story. It was <laughs> making me think that your next book should be a memoir with that um, <laughs> part of it. Another, but I wonder. I wanted to kind of build on that, and in your bio, because I noticed that three of your your novels have been adapted for television now, and Variety just announced that Amblin Partners has secured the film rights to Confessions in B Flat, which is a, such a great title. <laughs> and you. with Academy Award winning actor and producer Octavia Spencer to be among the producers, and I bet all of our listeners have heard of heard of her. So that's an amazing amazing thing. And I'm curious if, if it's possible to give a context for all these deals, or, or maybe they're all just so different, but what words of veteran wisdom do you have for authors who are longing for their books to be adapted to film and TV? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> my, um, my first foray <laughs> into that, um, that world of, of uh, you know, adaptation, um, you know, was quite some time ago. So um, it was with um, BET, um, and so BET was the, the the publisher. They had taken over from um, Kensington, um, the Arabesque line, and um, they bought all of the stock essentially, um, and turned and decided, you know, these are perfect platforms for us to expand our television viewing audience because there's a built-in audience for these books. Um, and so they took the books. There was going to be a 10 slate selection. So three of them, they, they did of mine and um, they, you know, they did the other, other seven, not to, you know, get into the weeds of things, but it was not the best of experiences. Um, a lot of that had to do with the way that our contracts were originally written. Um, so if I would talk about advice to aspiring writers um, or even writers that have contracts now, is to really look at your rights uh, in terms of distribution rights. Because um, a lot of times, you know, we just get stuck on the money. Oh, they're going to pay me X amount of dollars. And we don't look at the fine print. Um, because when my contracts were written um, in the early 90s, there were no, um, there was no belief that, the books would go beyond just being books. So there, there, there was nothing there so that when BET came in, they already owned the property to do with it as they wished. Um, and so that became a little bit contentious. But anyway, you know, so, so the, they came out and, you know, they are what they are. <laughs> and I can, you know, list that on my resume. <laughs> um, uh, but it was an interesting experience. This experience with um, Amblin Partners and Octavia Spencer um, was wonderful. 
um, from the beginning. I think the hardest part was keeping it a secret for the past two years. I bet. <laughs> so that that was that was basically the hardest part. So you know, I you know, I would really, really, um, you know, caution, uh, you know, writers to look at their contracts, really, really look at their contracts and understand them. You know, if you have an agent, make sure you have an agent that um, understands that avenue, if that's the direction that you want to go to. And then, you know, a lot of times, you know, um, you know, we think we want our books adapted and then, you know, you see it and it's just like, oh my God, what is that? Um, especially if you do not have um, um, any type of consulting um, built into the contracts. Um, so those are some things to kind of like really look out for. Really good advice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to take you back to, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, and just again, marvel at this sheer volume of books that you've been able to write. What's made it possible for you to stay in this space and to write so many books year over year? Um, I always have something that I'm thinking about. And, you know, early on, I discovered that I could write different things and I could write different things for different houses. And so what happened for me, whereas a lot of times when you're only contracted with one publishing house, you can only produce so many books for them at a time. You just, it's just the way that it is. But I figured out early in my career, how can I maximize all of these ideas that I have in my head? Well, I can do um, short stories and novellas for this company. I can do bigger romances for this company. I can do, um, you know, category romances over here. And at this company, I can do my women's fiction, which is my other big love. And so when I'm able to do that, I'm able to produce a variety of work across the spectrum. And, you know, I don't write as fast as I used to. When I, <laughs> when I first started out, you know, I could like party on the weekends. I could like go to work. I'd come home at night and, you know, have my coffee, smoke my cigarettes and like write until two, three o'clock in the morning when the sun comes up, especially on the weekend. I I tell you, I cannot do that now. Um, and so, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had to sort of like readjust like how I do things. But that's that's basically how I was able to do that. I was writing for I tended to write for multiple houses. And then, you know, I was being asked by the publishers that I was working with, you know, to write a special you know, write a special story for, you know, our holiday event, or here's a Mother's Day project that we're going to do. We're going to do something for Christmas. Um, and so that happened a lot. And then also too, is that, you know, when I first started out and started doing, you know, two, three books a year, the pool of writers wasn't that large. Um, and so they would, you, you get called on more often because the, the pool was smaller. So now we have this, you know, this plethora of, you know, Black authors in so many different genres that you see, you know, so much, so much diversity in terms of, um, you know, the kind of books that come out and how often they come out and things like that. So that, I think, you know, really helped to rack up the numbers, so to speak. Um, and, you know, I was really interested in doing editing. So, like, I would, you know, collect 
um, you know, stories from other authors and put whole anthologies together. So I did several of those, um, you know, so I, I really like worked a lot in my earlier days. Um, and, and so now I, I, you know, I probably do like one and a half books <laughs> a year, you know, and I know, you know, like my editor will be calling me shortly. It's like, uh, you were supposed to turn your manuscript in like two weeks ago. I was like, really? Hey, uh, you know, that's a pretty good pace, a book and a half a year. I just want to say, even though you've slowed down <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I'm interested in, Donna, uh, and I say this as somebody who's never written a series and it makes me all the more fascinated as a writer about how people write series mm-hmm. and you've written a lot of series and, and they seem to vary in terms of how many books you publish in a given series, you know, anywhere from two to, to maybe eight books in a series. And so I'm just curious, how do you know when you're starting a series and do you, and how do you know when to call it quits? Mm, um, you know, that's very interesting. Um, series was not my thing when I first started. My idea of writing was write the story. When you get to the end, it's the end. Um, and it was my editor at the time, Monica Harris, um, when we were at Kensington, who said, you know, you really need to think about doing series because readers really like it. You know, they like to know what happened to the character after the book ended. They want to know what happened to the the, the cousin that was introduced on page two, you know. And I was like, really? And so I started thinking about what I wanted to, re- you know, to continue telling. And the way that I wrote at that time, the stories ended when they ended and there really wasn't room to like leap off into something else. So, um, so, so the first one that I did, um, that had a sequel to it, I think was, um, scandalous. No scandalous. I did like later, but I had a private affair and it's funny because I decided, okay, I'm going to start with a private affair because I didn't particularly care for (laughs) the heroine at the end of the book. And, um, you know, my editor insisted, oh, no, you know, this is a romance. And, you know, once you start the characters off together, they have to end up together at the end. I'm like, oh, God, I don't like her. So I in book two, I killed her off (laughs) and I put in another character. And that's how, you know, I start I I worked on that. So they were, I think, like three, three books in that series. And, uh, you know, because everybody fell in love with, you know, the male character, like what happens to him and he's such a tortured soul and he needs happiness and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so um, he had three books and I was like, OK, I, 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 I kind of like this. And so then um, what started happening is that in terms of the, the, the series of books, I thought about them in terms of concept. And so one was um, Pause for Men, and it was about these four women, right? So you have four women, so each of these women can have their own story. And they essentially were women who were sort of like undercover people. (laughs) Um, And so they they had all these different skills, but it was, um, you know, behind the scenes. So nobody knew exactly what it was that they did. I said, okay, that's, so that was fun. And so basically just looking at a character who is beloved by your readers um, and you want them to have more of a life beyond, um, you know, the end of book one, or you have a, a concept that can um, expand 
um, and you bring in different people. It's always great to when you have families, right? Because if you have, you know, five brothers and six sisters, well, you could be writing, you know, for like 10 books because everybody has their own book. I love that. Uh, yeah. You know, um, so I, I had that with, you know, with one of the families. Um, and then I did, you know, the brothers, um, the grants of DC. And so, so, you know, it depends, it depends like that. Um, I don't, it's, it's, it's kind of fun to do because you understand the characters a lot. Um, and so it's not so difficult to write the next book, but the thing that you always have to remember is that the book still needs to be able to stand alone because you can't pick up book three and don't understand what's happening because all of the information is in book one and two. So, so they have to be crafted in such a way that, um, they can still stand alone, even, um, you know, if some, if, if they read them out of order, you know, whatever the case may be. So. Right. So many considerations, goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I want to take us back to this whole pioneering a subset of genre. Um, And, you know, I read on Wikipedia who your influences have been, and there's some pretty cool names there, but what about who you've influenced? And I know this is a question that requires you to brag a little bit, but what kind of doors do you think you've opened to other authors in this space? Or is there anyone, you know, in particular that you know of and admire who calls you a mentor? Wow. Um, That always makes me feel kind of a way, but, um, (laughs) um, you know, I, I, I think that what I've tried to do like over, cause I feel like I've really benefited a lot over the years. And I remember when I first started, there was nobody to ask questions. There was nobody. And like one of the first people that helped me was Sandra Kitt. Um, and Sandra had been around. She was actually one of the fir- early, earlier pioneers. She wrote the first African-American romance for Harlequin, like ever. like amazing, like back in the early eighties. So she was one of those six that I was talking about. And so like, for me, once I got my feet in the door and understood what I could do, some of the things that I did, like, because of the work that I did, you know, outside of writing, like I was a publicist for the Queens library for, for a decade. Um, And so what I would do is I would be able to work with creating programs that would bring writers to the, to, to the libraries. Um, You know, all my friends that, you know, my writer friends, like, are you in town? Like, we're going to do this event, like, you know, come out. And so, you know, getting them to do, to do those types of things and and getting them exposure. Um, You know, we put on a, a, a multimedia performance um, turning our books into stage productions. So I, you know, I tapped into different writers of my friends of mine to be able to do that. So that was like fantabulous. Doing writing workshops, like I've done writing workshops over the years. You know, set, one of my former students published a book eventually. Um, I just got a, uh, a, a, a text message, an email the other day um, from one of... Um, from Sandra Newsom, who said, you know, I'm so proud of her. She's been my mentor and my this and that. I was like, really? Wow. You know, um, so you just really don't know all the time, all the people that you touch, um, you know, putting together, you know, tapping into different writers who are not nationally known, 
um, but I know you. And so I'm putting together this anthology for, you know, for BET. Do you want to be part of it? Um, so those types of things um, is, is what I've tried to do as much as possible. Um, you know, and that's, that's been like over the years, you know. Donna, in closing, I want to test this, this idea, this theory with you. Okay. <laughs> so you've published 100 books. Question is, is the 100th child possibly as new and lustrous as the earlier ones? Like what keeps you going and what are the kind of things that excite you about writing and publishing after all this time? Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like saying, you know, you ask a parent, you know, who's your favorite child? Uh, my favorite book is always, is usually the book that I'm working on at the time. You know, I'm totally, totally invested in it. Um, there's some favorites, um, you know, that, 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 that stick out, but you know, like I have, as I've matured over the years, you know, cause this has been over 30 years, you know, that I've been writing and, and, um, you know, when I first started, you know, my worldview was a certain way. Um, you know, as I've grown and, you know, seen things and traveled and paid more attention to what's happening around me, um, my worldview has expanded. And so the, the ideas um, that I work with have expanded as well. Um, and and it, it's reflected, you know, in my novels, you know, Confessions and B-flat uh, was a perfect example of, of trying to, um, you know, broaden those horizons. Um, the upcoming novel, um, I Am Aya, uh, which will be out in May, um, is an example of me looking beyond what it is that I'm doing. So, and, you know, even as I'm writing, I'm thinking about something else, right? So I have to try to remain focused. Um, so, so there's always things that interest me. Like, you know, I try to keep my my ear to the ground, you know, I read, I, you know, watch a lot of television, have, you know, conversations with people and all of that sparks, um, you know, um, creativity, you know, at least it does for me. Um, there's always something, you know, that I want to write about. I want to tell, you know, a different kind of story. Um, I want to write the story that I want to read. And, and, and so that's, that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me going. I love that answer. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. Yeah, and congratulations on uh, this like hundred and whatever book this is. I am Aya that's coming out. It's awesome. And, you know, to a hundred more, I, I think it's possible. Oh, we shall see. <laughs> you got to pick up the pace though, you know. I know, I know. I'm like falling, I'm falling off the wagon. <laughs> oh, thank you, Donna. Good luck with the new book too. Thank you so much. I appreciate all of you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Well, Grant, uh, for this week's book trend, we have to revisit TikTok because of all the tension. Is the U.S. going to force TikTok to sell? Are we going to see the platform banned? Will there be automatic limits placed on the amount of time kids under 18 can spend on the app? So many things to follow here. And I'm not on TikTok, but my kid is. And it's such a time suck addiction building platform. It's wild to watch him get sucked in. And of course, I have placed limits on him. But ongoingly, we're contending with all the ways we're dealing with social media as a force in our lives. And TikTok is like, you know, really under scrutiny. Funny, Brooke, I haven't heard that from other parents. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's definitely been interesting to read uh, the news about Biden trying to force a sale of TikTok, which is currently owned by the Chinese internet company. I think it's pronounced ByteDance. It might be BitDance. And, you know, there's a U.S. Senate bill coming to the floor to do just that. And our government has long been citing national security concerns with the platform. And now, as of last month, a dozen U.S. senators have proposed a bill backed by the White House to specifically grant the administration powers to ban TikTok and other form-based technologies if they pose national security threats. I haven't seen anything like this in my lifetime, Brooke, so this is really interesting, and I'm just curious, why do you think this conversation matters to book publishing? Well, we've never had a social media platform of such influence and prominence owned by a foreign country before, so that's number one. Um, Clearly, they've always been subject to U.S. laws, and of course, because it's China rather than a Western nation, and because we don't trust what China might do with our data, and because there's this recent spat of surveillance balloons in our airspace, well, obviously, all of that is a lot. And TikTok is a major place where book influencers are spending their time. Book Talk has replaced Bookstagram as the leading place for influencers, mostly because young people are on TikTok. And it's worth noting that when cultural issues come up and you're dealing with a foreign entity, they're not subject to our regulations. And TikTok has been widely criticized, for instance, for devaluing and under-prioritizing Black content. Uh, In 2021, TikTok issued a public apology for the quote-unquote significant error that made users question how much they actually value Black content creators. And I read an article where Robert Reich, uh, former United States Secretary of Labor, who we run into now and then again uh, in Berkeley, was commenting on this situation and said, quote, we need a broader social movement towards algorithmic auditing in order to gain social trust and confidence in the decision making of large companies. But the social movements here in the States are not always going to mirror what's happening or even can happen in China. And the things that we're concerned about here socially might not be the same concerns they have. I mean, that's an understatement. So certainly our populations and cultures and histories are very different. And I just think this is an example of something in addition to privacy and data mining and state secrets that's causing a lot of concern for folks um, to be considering, right? That these content creators who are the ones publishing on TikTok are publishing adjacent. They're influencers, they're authors, or they're future authors. Yeah, I actually read on Jane Friedman's hot sheet this week that TikTok announced it's looking for an acquisitions editor, of all things. And the listing can be found on LinkedIn, and it's it's for a full-time position based in New York. And under About the Team, the job post reads, The online publishing team aims to empower authors and bring great books to a worldwide audience. We use not only our data strength, but also our promotional advantages to help writers find their target readers and make their books viral, both online and offline. So, Brooke, I'm curious what you make of this. I guess um, BitDance is going to launch its own imprint here, maybe, or is at least building a team to do so. I mean, that's indeed what it looks like. I could not find a single news story that covered this. So Jane totally got the scoop just from finding the listing on LinkedIn, but it's something to watch. And really the only comparable to this would be when Amazon launched its publishing imprints and its arrival into that market was very downplayed. They did not want to make a big splash about it, didn't want to publicize that the parent company was Amazon. And I'm sure Dance Bit 
I think it's Dan's bit, sees a giant opportunity to get into the book market because of what they can do with their algorithms to influence book sales. So for sure, something to watch uh, and also why people need to be careful. Like you are being influenced whether you think you are or not. And this circles back to that larger concern about who's doing the influencing. And we can certainly make a case that there are plenty of nefarious U.S. actors influencing us. But I think the black box of the Chinese state and what we don't know about its dealings with TikTok data is just going to continue to be an issue. Uh, But I'll be watching with great interest uh, about the imprint. And if TikTok does get banned, I will not be sad, but James definitely will be. (laughs) Yeah, it's sad that a force for good, which TikTok has actually been with its community of readers, can also be a force for bad. And we're seeing that with most, if not all, social media companies in some fashion. It's good to know that there are no nefarious algorithms at work in our stories. So that's that's what we're going to keep our focus on every week on Right Minded. We want you to write the algorithm of maximizing your creativity and your confidence. So please tell your friends to tune in every week so that we can continue the conversation of creating magic on the page. 